Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, 10 to 12 this morning. We've been making our way through this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and coming now to uh, the end of that letter in these verses this morning. Our dog, I uh, put up a picture of him a few weeks ago, Bandit. I don't have another picture this morning, but uh, Bandit is, uh, is confused about a few things, one of which is that he thinks he's a guard dog, um, but usually he just sleeps through, through most things he should be alarmed by. What he's really alarmed by, though, are like poodles walking by the house and small children and uh, elderly couples on a leisurely walk. He violently reacts uh, at our door and our front windows to all these threats that he notices. And, you know, it can be a little annoying uh, when you have the dog barking and barking and barking all the time at things that are not really a threat. So our strategy in the midst of his barking is uh, to distract him. And there's one word that works. There's only one word that works. And only if it comes from the lips of my wife, who he's very dedicated to, she will call out in the midst of his vicious attack on the window of our house to get the two-year-old toddler, um, treat, treat. At which point, his ears perk up, his eyes perk up, and he toddles off to the room where the treats are, where he consumes a treat, and then returns to the front door to make sure that we are safe from non-threats. Um, that's what his job is. That's what he does. And the only recourse for us is to often distract him from that to get him to stop barking. You know, what we do with Bandit, our dog, is often what the devil does with us. Uh, although our uh, pursuits, hopefully, Lord willing, are pursuits that are good that the Lord is calling us to, the devil is very good at distracting us. And he knows just the word or just the thing to say or do in our lives to distract us from what we should be focused on. And I want to talk about that this morning from Ephesians uh, chapter 6 and verses 10 to 12. And uh, what I want us to see is that... Uh, our real enemy is not human beings. Our real enemy is the devil. And the devil is very good at distracting us into thinking that other people are the enemy. I want us to look at that this morning from Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 12, as we see that we must not lose sight of who the real enemy is in this world. So would you listen as I read from Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may, able, may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning as we spend a few moments in your word. 
remind us as we do this, Lord, what the real battle is and who the real enemy is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this section of Ephesians is the exhortational high point of the letter. He's begun with some doctrinal truths, some theological things that we'll look at again in a few moments. But what he's doing as the letter comes to an end is he is offering encouragement to a group of people who felt oppressed in their faith. Remember, this was a season of persecution in the church. There was resistance from both Jews and Gentile leaders and rulers. And Christian people, those that were being converted to Christ in places like Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, were looking for encouragement in the midst of the battle that they saw shaping up around them. And so Paul, in writing this letter, is offering them, in the end, this encouragement. This encouragement, this exhortation about how they can withstand the oppression that they face. And the first thing that he says to them in this passage is that the real enemy is the devil and his schemes. You can see that in verse 11 and 12, the end of verse 11. Stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The real enemy, says Paul, is not flesh and blood. Now what does he mean by flesh and blood? Flesh and blood here means something like human opposition. Now this is difficult for us because, because that's the way we conceive of the oppression that we're experiencing. We focus it in on what we can see and touch and identify, and often it takes the form of human beings in our mind, and they become the ones that we frame up as our enemy. What Paul is reminding these people about is that the enemy is not flesh and blood. The real enemy is the devil and his schemes. Flesh and blood, in the way that he's using the phraseology here, is not evil in and of itself. It was created by God to be good, but it became subject to sin in the fall. And many of the ideas in the ancient world, Gnosticism and others, took flesh and blood and they made it into an evil thing that we could be focused on and say is evil and terrible and we're going to focus on only spiritual things. The Lord doesn't want us to separate things like that. And He certainly doesn't want us to settle in the end on identifying human beings as the ultimate ones that we're resisting. They are not the ultimate one that we are resisting. The ultimate one we are resisting is the devil and his schemes, which are very creative and destabilizing. Maybe I would better say that they are very decreative. They are very uncreating. How is the devil described in, in the Bible? Well, he's described in a number of ways. In one sense, the Bible always frames up the devil with terminology that surprises us when it describes him as an angel of light, a day star, the son of the morning, the ruler of this age. And you might think when you read those descriptions of the devil that this figure might be a good thing. But, but really, when you look at the other set of descriptions that we find in the Bible for the devil, especially in the New Testament, we recognize that what it's doing there is it's telling us the way that he presents himself to us. And really what he's doing is he's masquerading. 
as those things. He's dressing up as those things. What he is truly is described elsewhere using terms like the accuser of the righteous, a murderer, a deceiver, a devourer, an adversary, a dragon. And what the devil is excellent at is reducing and deconstructing the good blessings of God. I mean, you can just think about the ways that he does this. He takes good gifts, like God gave us the gift of sexuality and sex between a husband and a wife to procreate and to be a blessing in this world. And the devil takes something like that and he twists it and he and he obscures it, and he decreates it into the base pursuit of satisfying our lusts. He takes the good gift of financial resources that we have in our lives, and he decreates them and deforms them into such a thing that we want to pursue this to satisfy our sense of greed. He takes the good gift even of something like children that he blesses us with, and the devil takes that and he decreates it and he distorts it into looking at children in a way that we, we have to structure our lives to find meaning around them. And the list goes on and on. This is something that he's always been good at. I can think of some major things that he's been good at in the world. He took the good gift of nuclear energy, which was discovered in 1932 in labs in the United States, and within just a few years, he took the good gift of nuclear energy and he twisted it into the destruction, the potential destruction of the human race. Albert Einstein, the great uh, uh, scientist and another scientist we don't know as well, Szilard, wrote a letter to Franklin Delano Roosevelt shortly after the discovery of nuclear energy and the splitting of the atom, warning him about what was going to be done with it. It's called the einstein Zillard Letter. And in it, they say this, In the course of the last four months, it has been made probable that it may become possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium by which vast amounts of power and large quantities of new radium-like elements would be generated. This new phenomenon would also lead to the construction of bombs, and it is conceivable, though much less certain, that extremely powerful bombs of a new type may be thus constructed. I understand that Germany has actually stopped the sale of uranium from the Czechoslovakian mines which she has taken over. That she should have taken such early action might perhaps be understood on the ground that the son of the German Undersecretary of State is attached to the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin, where some of the American work on uranium is now being repeated. This was a desperate letter sent to the President of the United States for fear that a good thing that had been discovered by scientists that could be used for the blessing of humanity was already within six years being twisted into a way to destroy humanity. And that is exactly what the devil does. And many are unwittingly caught up in his schemes. Sometimes we find ourselves accidentally, unwittingly cooperating 
in the schemes of the devil to deform, decreate, and deconstruct the faith. And there's many ways that we see that happen, but I'm going to, to mention one that he's been very active with in the last few years, and that is the advent of online worship, which came about before COVID on its own, mostly as a tool to help those that were sick or ailing that couldn't make it to church because of some uh, uh, inability to be there, which we were grateful for during COVID, but which has now become the substitute for being active in the body of Christ. Why? Because it's easier. It's easier just to stay home and watch church on TV. I don't have to deal with the people and the smells and the sights and the sounds and crying children and diapers. And you know what? We don't even have to watch it at 9.30. We can watch it at 7 o'clock with a glass of wine and enjoy our time. The devil takes something that was intended to be a help for a few and he twists it by his schemes to deconstruct his people. And sometimes we get caught up in it. So we have unwitting cooperation. We have unwitting victimization as well. Another example of this might be social media, which was invented, I don't know how many years ago now, 20 years ago, that at the beginning we were grateful to be able to you know, connect with people that we hadn't seen in a while on Facebook and grandmas and grandpas were able to talk to their grandchildren and see immediate pictures of them and all of a sudden, 20 years later, social media is distorting and undermining the ability of our young people to have any sense of self-value because they are so exposed to what the world is telling them about who they are what they should value, and how they should go about building relationships in their life. The devil is excellent at his schemes. And we often are wrapped into them. Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus, stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Second thing I want us to see is that the devil makes use of means to accomplish his purposes. Describes a number of these means here in verse 12 when he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, who against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What are these things that he's describing the first set the first pairing there are the rulers in authority the arche and exousia of the world which probably refers to earthly parties who are heavily influenced by the schemes of the devil now what he wants us to do is to recognize because he doesn't want to name them by name he's naming them by what they are they are the rulers and authorities, in particular those that are under the influence of the schemes of the devil. So the, the key for us is being able to separate the person from the power that is influencing them. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, the earlier part of this letter to the church at Ephesus, he wrote these words in the beginning 
of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And in a sense, I think that's one of the ways that Paul wants us to be able to identify the fact that there are, there are those in the world who manifest themselves in flesh and blood as, as rulers and authorities, who are, are given over to the schemes of the devil. They have embraced them and made them their own. The second category here are the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And probably in the case of what Paul's writing about here, these refer to the pagan deities that framed the culture and spirituality of so many people that he was trying to take the gospel to. This might have been the gods like Artemis and Diana and Zeus of the Greco-Roman world that had swayed people into their worship. These earthly statues and things that were, that were uh, very manifest in, in, in flesh and blood. The people would, would dedicate themselves to. These are the cosmic powers over this present darkness, which is a, an expression that describes the age in which the devil still has sway more than it is an expression of a certain time and place. In other words, while we wait for Jesus' final return, we are living in an age in which the devil has sway. Now Jesus has defeated the devil at the cross already. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can receive the benefit and the blessings of following a Lord who has already proven that the devil is defeated, and yet the devil is still fighting until the day when Jesus comes back again. Many make an illustration out of this if you think of the difference between D-Day and V-E Day. D-Day was the decisive battle in World War II. It's the battle that proved that the Allied powers had overcome the Nazi and the Axis powers. But it wasn't until V-E Day, sometime later, where the battle was finally over. That's the time we live in. The devil still has sway. He can still do damage to us in this age of present darkness. For us, we don't worship gods like Artemis and Diana and Zeus anymore. We worship idolatrous or anti-God ideals that are bound up in human traditions and socio-political structures or ideas that capture the minds and hearts and imaginations of people but are opposed to the work of God. Carl Truman recently wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he describes very well where we are in our moment, resisting the cosmic powers. He said this, the intuitive moral structure of our modern social imaginary prioritizes victimhood, sees selfhood in psychological terms, regards traditional sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying, and places a premium on the individual's rights to define his or her own existence. All these things play into legitimizing and strengthening those groups that can define themselves in such terms. They capture, one might say, the spirit 
of the age. I'll give you a, a practical example of one thing that has uh, happened in the last 50 years and has gained a lot of uh, uh, momentum today, and it is this concept of race that the world wants to foist upon us. We have, biblically, one race. It's the human race, made in the image of God, people who express that human race in different ethnicities and cultures and languages and backgrounds. They may look different than one another on the surface, but they are the same race. But in the modern world, what we've tried to do is we've taken this idea so that we can pit people against each other. And we can, we can take down one race or the other. It happens in both ways. Early on, in the earlier uh, part of uh, European history and American history, people that were from certain ethnicities undermined the ability of people from certain other ethnicities whose skin was black to have freedom. And today we're reversing the model and we're saying uh, you're automatically a racist if you have a certain skin color. You see, friends, these are the devil's schemes. And this is what he's doing. He's trying to take us and pit us against each other. And it penetrates not just the secular world, it penetrates the church so that Christians can't worship together because, oh, well, you're of this skin color or that skin color or that background or that background. And the devil all the while is gloating in it. The Bible says, however, in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that those things don't exist. It just means the most important thing is our oneness in Christ Jesus. Who are the third category, the spiritual forces in the heavenly places? This probably refers to the devil's minions, the demons that do their work in the world, and it's impossible for us to rank them or try to define them in an explicit sense other than to say um, that they like to blend in to do their work. And maybe the best writing that ever uh, was given to us on this was C.S. Lewis's writing, The Screwtape Letters. Because you know, when we think of demons and the devils, we think of horns and, and, and pitchforks and burning figures, or if we take that uh, kind of comic imagery away, we think of people that are all evil all the time, like Hitler and whatever. And what C.S. Lewis showed so powerfully in his book, The Screwtape Letters, is that that's not the way the devil works. The devil works in ways where you can barely notice him, and he's very good at it. Lewis writes in his book, The Screwtape Letters, and by the way, if you've never read it, he's kind of um, putting himself in the position of a, a senior devil giving a junior de uh, demon advice about how to distract human beings, and this is what he says. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. That's why if you can once get him, that's the person they're working on, to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and much more amusing. 
The devil and his schemes are always at work. He's doing what he can to undermine us and distract us from what we should be about. The last thing to see this morning is the way to counter the devil's schemes, and that is to actively cultivate our spirituality. He says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. First thing he wants to point out to them and that I want to underline for you today, brothers and sisters, is we are in a fight. We are in a fight. And it's not like a modern war kind of fight where we fire missiles and there's you know, fighter pilots and cruise missiles and satellite weaponry and electronic warfare. The fight we're in is described here as a wrestling match. It's a unique word in the New Testament, pali, which is probably taken from the early word world of the Greek Olympics in which two figures wrestle. And I want you just to, to think about the difference between that kind of a fight and the ones that we have in modern warfare. When you are wrestling, you are eye to eye, body to body, sweat to sweat. And you're grappling and making moves and trying to put the other person in a position where they can't respond. Get them off balance so you can pounce. That's the kind of fight that the devil is in with us. He's not firing cruise missiles at us. He's wrestling with us. He's wrestling with us to destabilize us and to throw us off balance so he can deliver his final blow. Another thing I want you to notice here about this fight is that nowhere in Ephesians 6 are we told to win. Did you see that? What are we told to do? Stand. Stand in the strength of his might. Our charge is to stand strong and engage. Now to do that, it requires three things, one of which Pablo is going to look at next week, but the first two I want to mention here for you in closing. The first thing he says is be strong in the Lord. And the, that rules out one thing. It rules out being strong in ourselves. And thinking we've got it figured out. And thinking that we can do this on our own. And thinking that we can conjure up enough energy, strength, wisdom to defeat the devil in our own terms. We are in a wrestling match with a foe who is powerful. The book of Ephesians, the entire outline of the book of Ephesians, begins to lay out for us what it means to be standing strong in the Lord. And the very first thing, in chapter 1 and 2, that Paul begins with is that you are saved by grace and not works. Your salvation, your hope, is grounded in what Christ has done for you and not what you do for yourselves. And if you're going to stand in the fight and wrestle, I can tell you this, the second you think, 
that you've saved yourself and that your morality is better, your wisdom is better, your knowledge is better. The second you position yourself in that way, the devil will take you down. Because the truth is, none of us are good in that way. If you're going to stand in the Lord, you're going to stand in His grace. And you're going to wake up every morning and you're going to be reminded that you have a God who loves you so much that He sent His Son Jesus to die for you and to save you. Stand in the strength of the Lord. The rest of the book of Ephesians continues the theme for being strong in the strength of His might. It's, it's a call that the Lord gives us to arrange our lives according to His wisdom. And I won't go back into the details, but let me just remind you everything we've said in Ephesians already. We are stronger when we are unified in Christ. Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4. We are stronger when we are not divided by ethnicity and outer markers. Ephesians 3. We are stronger when we pray earnestly. Ephesians 3. We are stronger when we live differently than the unbelieving world, Ephesians 4. We are stronger when we love one another deeply and we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5. We are stronger when our households are conformed to Christ, Ephesians 5 and 6. He goes on in the rest of this book to talk about putting on the armor of God. Pablo is going to preach on that next week, but very briefly, here's the last point. We are stronger when we engage in the battle. We are stronger when we engage in the battle because when you wrestle, you develop strength. When you retreat and you don't engage and you hide, you don't develop strength. And the church and believers in the modern age must engage. We must engage because we get stronger when we engage. You know, I, I've been so proud over the last few years of so many of the students that have graduated from this church. I'm proud of all of them and all the things they're doing. But let me just point out to you, do you know we have four young people recently graduated from our church that are serving in the armed forces of this country? Three in the Marines, one in the Army. They left high school and they took the challenge to engage. And they can tell you stories and their parents can tell you stories of the difficulties and the pressures and the pains of getting up in the morning to jog and work out and learn about the tactics of the enemy. But they're engaging. My question for you this morning is, are you? If you're not engaging, this guy right here, Pablo Rosales, will put you to work, even this week, engaging in the wrestling match against the enemy. And when you do, you will find refreshment in your faith because it will be active. And you will fall back time and time again the more you engage on the gift of God's grace. 
And that will give you the fuel to go back and engage before you fall back again on the gift of His grace and you walk back to the fight. The Lord will win the battle. But He calls us to stand and remember who the enemy is. Let's pray. Father, would you help us this morning as we, your people, remember the calling that you have given us. We thank you for this entire letter to the church at Ephesus, which is a letter to every church, every Christian church, about what it is that we are called to do, who we are in Christ. And we are, as you have reminded us over and over again, your children saved by grace through faith and given a calling to serve you in this world and to resist the schemes of the devil by standing in the promises of the gospel. I pray, Father, this morning that you would inspire us, that you would motivate us, that you would strengthen us as your people to not retire from the battle, but to stand and engage and trust you, Father, that you will deliver us in your perfect timing and in your perfect way. We thank you for this, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.